there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Tea for C. If you're the kind of person who views a desk job as a death sentence and you're interested in the food industry, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has built the majority of his career around food. And as you'll hear, while in hindsight, it may look like it was a straight trajectory, everything planned, none of it was planned then or now. But before I introduce you to Mitch Berliner, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek at the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Mitch Berliner. As a trailblazer and entrepreneur, Mitch's entrepreneurial endeavors over the last 40 years have put him at the pointy end of the spear among Washingtonians who've been instrumental in making this area in and around the nation's capital a world-class food market. Today, seasonal farm markets and freshly made food to go are familiar to most of us. But Mitch did both and started the takeout gourmet food concept shortly after he graduated from college in 1970. A few years later, he founded Berliner Foods, introducing people in the Mid-Atlantic region to some of their favorite treats, foods like Haagen-Dazs, Ben and Jerry's Dove Bars, and numerous other high-quality and organic frozen products. After Edie's, as in Edie's Ice Cream, it's a bigger company, acquired his business in 1985, Mitch opened Berliner Specialty Distributors and introduced an array of organic and specialty foods to the Washington area. Then in 2008, Mitch and his wife, Deborah Moser, founded Central Farm Markets, which today runs three farmers markets in Maryland and Northern Virginia to give area residents and farmers the opportunity to buy and sell farm-to-table produce, meats, cheeses, all kinds of things, various products. Deborah and Mitch's mission is to provide a professionally managed community venue where customers can purchase high-quality, locally grown, fresh, and prepared foods, and they want to support agricultural innovation, green practices, and sustainability. Most recently, Mitch and his wife co-founded Meat Crafters to bring locally sourced, homemade, cured meats, salamis, and sausages to area restaurants and consumers. And last but not least, Mitch was inducted into the Maryland Food Industry Hall of Fame for his contribution to the food industry and his long-standing involvement with numerous charitable and civic organizations. Mitch, 
You're sitting right across from me. Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Well, first of all, let me thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. And for those people that know me, I sort of wake up caffeinated and most people wouldn't want to see me on caffeine. (laughs) Okay. So you've got your bottle of Mountain Valley water there. And under the circumstances, I forgive you for not accepting my offer for a freshly brewed cup of coffee. Mitch, I want to start by sharing with our listeners how you and I met. It was a beautiful Sunday in July of 2019, and I had just come back with my family from spending a lovely summer vacation in the mountains of Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. And one of the things that I loved to do the two weekends that we were there was to get up and go to the farmer's market in Great Barrington, Mass., which was the city that we were staying in. And so when I came back in July and I woke up that Sunday morning, I was like, I know that there is a farmer's market in our area. So I decided I would go. And I was standing, I think it was in front of the peaches. And I happened to look up. I don't know if you were talking to somebody. I think you may have been. And I looked up and I saw you and I saw that you were wearing a name tag. And I read it and I said, oh, because it said something. Did it say founder, co-founder? And I said, you co-founded this farmer's market? I did. It's incredible. And so you and I started talking. And you shared with me your story about how you and Deborah started Central Farm Markets. And as I said in my introduction, although in hindsight, it may look like your career in the food business was planned out from the very beginning and was methodically kind of deconstructed step by step, a very deliberate process to get from where you were to where you are now. None of it was planned. In fact, when you were in college at American University, which is not far from where we are right now, you, Mitch Berliner, were a computer science major. Was it the business school? Yes, it was the business school at American University. Yeah. And then when you graduated, you got an offer to work for what was then called the National Cash Register. But even before you started, You decided not to take it and instead went in a completely different direction. That is correct. When I looked into the future, I just didn't see me fitting in corporate world, going to work with a suit every day and a tie, which at the time was required. Ironically, not today at all. I think if you went for a job with a suit and tie today as an IT person, they would probably show you the door. But anyway... Uh, I think sandals are more appropriate, whatever their outfits are. That's exactly what happened. I just decided I better go find something else to do. I cannot see me doing this for the rest of my life. You didn't accept the job, I guess. That is correct. I didn't accept the job. And I said, okay, what am I going to do now for the rest of my life? So I really love children. And I ended up applying and becoming a physical education director at the Green Acres School and also taught an elective course called Cooking for Children. And I did that for three years and I loved working with kids. I just couldn't afford to make a living doing that. And that actually is how you ended up putting your toe in the world of 
Right. Food in farmers markets. So how did that happen? I worked my way through school and high school. I worked both in my parents' office. And when I got older, I also worked in restaurants. I was a busboy. I was a waiter. I cleaned dishes. I was an assistant to a chef at different restaurants. So I was always interested in food. Food was a very, very big part of our upbringing. My brother and I became my partner in the distribution businesses guy. And food was just so important to us. So we always gravitated around the table for conversations. We all cooked together. It was very unusual for the 1950s and 60s. We had a passion in our family for food. So I could not really pay the bills by teaching school and driving the school bus. So on the weekends, I ended up having a stall at the Farm Women's Cooperative Market, downtown Bethesda, and started making foods that I was making at home, all kinds of foods from different countries, different ethnic foods, regional American foods. No one was really doing that at the time. And we became very popular almost overnight. So you were in your kitchen, I'm guessing, in your apartment, and you just had big pots and you just started cooking up right. mostly soups. Well, we had everything. We you had, had everything. soups, pies, main courses. We did gumbos, vichyssoise, gazpacho, tabula, stuffed grape leaves. We would just switch it up all the time. And people would just come and see what we had to offer. Probably within a year, we were selling out of most everything by 1030. And when you say we, who was the other person? My wife at the time. Okay. So the two of you were cooking and selling on the weekends. Meanwhile, you're working full time. Yes, I was driving the school bus to and fro and teaching at the school. A really important thread that I'm going to start pulling on right now. Because I think it's so important for young people to hear this now, early in their careers, early in their life, is that you followed your interests and you also have this incredible gift to identify trends, emerging trends, before they even hit the spotlight. How did you move from doing the cooking on the weekends, driving the school bus, teaching sports at Green Acres, to moving more into the food industry? And in particular, how did you identify haagen ice cream as something that was worthwhile distributing here in the Atlantic region? Well, I usually went with my gut, and I often would say, I think this is particularly delicious. I don't see it around. No one's doing this or that. I'll do it or I'll distribute it or we'll make it. And so it wasn't that complicated. I just went with our gut and our passion. What happened in pretty short order, we became so busy at our farm market that we ended up opening up. In addition to the stand at the Farm Women's Cooperative Market, we opened up four other farm market stands in the Montgomery County area, and they were open six days a week. So what happened was eventually it just got to be too much. After my third year of teaching, we went full-time into the food business. What again happened was we couldn't keep up with the production ourselves, so I started looking for other products. 
And there was very little, let's call it boutique cheesemakers around the country, but I found a couple in Pennsylvania. And then there was also a Mennonite family that did cured meats and smoked meats. So we went up there and we started purchasing it from them and selling it at our markets. And one day we heard about a ice cream only sold in the carriage trade, that was the term then, called Haganaz, that really no one had heard of in Manhattan. What is the carriage trade? The carriage trade is like sort of your gourmet stores. That was the term they used to use, you know, the carriage trades. In other words, I came from the most people walked and the wealthy had carriages. (laughs) So that's how the carriage trade came about. I went up to New York and ultimately met with Ruben Mattis and his family. He was the founder, the genius behind the haagen and told him we'd like to have his product to sell and ultimately had conversations without distributing. And he said, I'll give you a shot. I said, you won't be sorry. And sort of the rest is history. We became ultimately by the mid 80s, the third largest distributor of haagen in the United States. And when we started, we didn't even have a freezer truck. So how did you go about this farm stand? There were a number of farm stands that you had to being able to find the capital to buy the freezer trucks to then at one point, you told me you had 20 trucks and you were covering six states as the third largest distributor of haagen in the country. Well... My advice to anybody, and Deborah and myself, we speak at American University in the Entrepreneurial Council is, first of all, if it's possible at all, try to keep your day job, or at least if you're working with a partner or your spouse, somebody should try to have the money to, you know. The regular paycheck. Yeah, regular paycheck, pay the mortgage and some food. You know, some entrepreneurs you read stories about, they sold everything and slept in their car. You need to have that kind of passion. If you think it's going to be a 40-hour week, you really should go get a job because you're working as many hours as you can stay awake. So what I did in each step of my career, we kept my job as a school teacher to get the farm stands and the markets going. Then we kept the markets going to buy some equipment for the wholesale business. It became larger and busier in the wholesale business. We closed our farm market business. And then we used the revenue that we would make, and we were constantly, constantly reinvesting in the business for new trucks and things like that. I tried as hard as I could, you know, not to borrow money. Let's go back to haagen because something you told me when you and I chatted about this is that now it seems like, of course, it makes sense, haagen it's an international brand. But back in the day, when you met with the founder and the owner in the Bronx, he was charging what he wanted retail for half a gallon of Haagen-Dazs was $1.49. No, you're shaking your head. Is that wrong? Well, it was a pint. Oh, it was a pint. Pint of Haagen-Dazs. That was $1.49. That was the retail. Yes. The retail. And most ice cream. The half gallons. The half gallons were 88 cents. Correct. It was a very hard sell. (laughs) So how did you, Mitch, convince the grocery stores in this area to start selling this ice cream? Because premium was not something that was 
the experience for the consumer, right? There weren't premium brands. Well, that's correct. And actually, Mr. Mattis of Hagen's Ice Cream created what is today known as a super premium. It was not complicated. I just knocked on doors till people said, yes, I was very, very persistent. I did demos in stores and it took us six years until we got the first store at Giant, which is one of the big supermarkets here in the Metro DC area, to give us one test store. And we don't have what you have today, which is somewhat advantageous, is the internet. You can get the word out. It was much more difficult to you know, get the word out. It was just guerrilla marketing, knocking on doors and things of that sort. So when you went to Mr. Mattis and said, I will sell your ice cream in the Washington metro area, you did not already have stores that were interested? We actually started by just selling the Ahagana's ice cream in our own farm market. And then to help pay for the gas, and I used van that we would stuff with dry ice, and I'd have to drive with the windows open so I didn't pass out. I had a, just maybe four or five stores that I was selling. I think I just had a vision that this was going to be a big brand, and I wanted to be part of it. I was really the first person to distribute the haagen outside of New York City, its home base. I thought that we would formalize our relationship. And I asked Mr. Mattis to be the exclusive distributor, and I said you wouldn't be sorry, and the rest is history. What year was this? That was about 1975, four or five. And around what time did you start bringing in some of the organic foods, some of the frozen foods like Amy's, which frankly I did not realize had been around that long? Yeah, Amy's is around a long time. It's a Berliner family. Great story. Not related, but we did check our family trees to say, oh, we might be related very far back. They didn't have 23 in me then. So anyway. <laughs> okay, you'll have to um, try it again. Right, I'll have to try it again. Once we got our foot in the door with many of the retailers in the area, I, again, sort of had a vision. I believed in it personally. We had to really believe in a product or a product line for us to carry it. We weren't interested in carrying products that were loaded with chemicals and things like that. And why? Well, I just kind of thought that really, to this day, it's very, quote, controversial because it's hard to have uh, controlled studies. But at the end of the day, the reason that I personally believe in organic products and natural products is even if there's zero science that it's, quote, unquote, better for you, and I certainly believe it is, if you eat organic and natural product and don't eat processed foods and things with colorings and artificial this and that, what's the harm? You're not going to be harmed by eating what you believe is better food. That was my position on that. So ultimately, being raised and exposed to all different kinds of foods, the whole industry was starting to evolve. So we looked at trade shows and et cetera for things that struck a chord with us. We really liked the product. We thought it had potential. And over time, we ended up having 50 plus manufacturers in our stable of products in our warehouse. So from creating, really creating from scratch, prepared foods that you sold to building farmers markets, to identifying premium ice cream and then organic foods, you are clearly someone 
who has a knack for identifying trends way before they become hot. Can you break it down for our young listeners, how you do it? You said you have to like it, but you can like something and not necessarily see it as being something that is going to appeal to a mass market. First of all, I don't believe in fads. I think that the most important thing in any food product is taste. So if you have all kinds of claims about this or that, at the end of the day, the thing that matters the most to the consumer is, does this taste good? And whatever the product is, food, not food, is this a value for my hard-earned dollars? And in that regard, I guess I have a good gut feel about that kind of thing. But I also had to like it, the products ourselves. That was very important. Somehow or other, because of maybe my upbringing and being exposed to food all my life, I had a good palate. And then there's always good luck and being at the right time at the right place and seizing the opportunity when it came by. Did you ever think, oh, this product, fill in the blank, this is going to be hot and you were wrong? That happened a few times and it wasn't the product as much as it was the timing. As an example, you see the popularity in bone broth today is huge. Well, we were selling a reduction of stocks and broth back in the 70s. It was something that all the top French restaurants, particularly in Europe, were doing. That's how it was the base of their sauces. And this particular product was called Saucier. And it was made by a fabulous chef that was a trained lawyer, didn't like it, similar to my story, went to France, worked in a restaurant, found, quote, unquote, the secret of a great sauce, came back, made it. We were so excited about it. We got great press about it, and it didn't sell. It was too far ahead of its time. So that has happened on a couple occasions, and that's a typical example. So do you think the important thing to do is to kind of diversify and not be all in in one product? Well, I think that's the key to any business. It's not to put all your eggs in one basket. You shouldn't have one individual or organization or customer that's the vast majority of your business. You shouldn't have one singular product or service. So it is definitely better to have an array of things for people to choose from. In case our listeners haven't been able to pick up on this already, you are, I would say, a very outgoing guy. I am indeed. I am indeed. Sometimes it's really hard to get me to shut up. But uh, (laughs) I am, I will tell you this from the heart. I am so blessed that I love people. I'm just so blessed. So for me to talk to complete strangers, whether it's in business or just on the street or at our farmer's markets, I love people. And I think that people feel that and they give you back that same love. We're lacking that, I think, to some degree, as we're spend too much time on our devices. People need to speak to each other. I speak to strangers in the elevator. I love people. And I feel blessed that I'm like that. That's the way my family was. That's the way we grew up. Very, very thankful for that. Well, I have to say, first of all, it comes through and our listeners don't have the opportunity to see you and meet you in person unless they go to one of these farmer's markets and ask for Mitch. 
But I can tell you, you're a very, in Yiddish, Hamish guy, very lovely, very authentic. I'm wondering, Mitch, how much your love of people has played in your ability to build your businesses? Well, I don't think there's any question that that has been a big advantage for me because generally I've done, quote unquote, the selling of our product lines and the selling of our concept or the selling to go get a loan for something. I was the person that, again, quote unquote, was doing the selling. I can connect to the guy that picks the trash up at your house and I can connect to the CEO of a company. And candidly, I don't think one person's better than the other person. We just all do different and important jobs. I never look down at people for what they do. I just take people for where they're at. I believe strongly you can find the commonality with anybody, and it's not that hard. So what advice do you have for young people who aren't naturally kind of extroverted, who don't really like talking to strangers? If they're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, should they partner with somebody who well, has that? Or what advice do you I, have? I, I was going to say that if it's difficult to you to talk to people, maybe you just should practice and maybe it's a skill that could be learned. I am blessed again. That just comes naturally to me. But I think there's lots of very successful people who aren't necessarily extroverts. The best thing as you build a company over time, if you're fortunate enough to have a successful business it's an old axiom. Just surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are in the different fields. I could barely read a balance sheet. So I had people that could do that for me and so on and so forth. I couldn't fix the trucks. A few times in the beginning, I had to change the oil. I didn't have any money. So you get people to do what they do best. The other piece of advice is, you know, be prepared to stay awake many hours. <laughs> because it's <laughs> That's that That's what it's going to take to start a business. It's very rare that somebody's, quote, an overnight success. Yeah. What do they say? Like you were an overnight success over 30 years or something right. like that. Right. It's just like, you know, when they introduce on The Tonight Show and or television, here's a wonderful up and coming comedian. And then all of a sudden he's, everybody knows the person's name and you know, for 10 years, he was playing all the bars and all the dives around the country, sleeping in expensive motels or his car. It wasn't an overnight success. It just appears that was an overnight success. So Mitch, for our young listeners who right now may be in school, not studying computers or business or marketing, but they want to go and become an entrepreneur. What advice do you have for them as to how they can think creatively about what kind of business to start? Well, I go back to the definition of an entrepreneur is somebody has a passion for something and they believe this is something that they'd like to have, this service, this good, whether it's food, whatever it is, they have to have a passion about it. If your entire goal is, I got to find something that's going to get me a lot of money real quick. I suggest get a finance background and go to Wall Street. If you want to be an entrepreneur, follow your dreams and prepare to work hard. Okay. 
So speaking of working hard, let's jump ahead to today, to the current time. How did you and Deborah come to start Meat Crafters? And what is Meat Crafters? Well, about 12 or so years ago, I sold my second distribution company, more my interest in it. Deborah actually said to me, you know, you were always interested in the art and science of salami. Salamis are one of the most interesting food products on the planet because it's meat and it's not cooked. I'm sure most of your listeners are going, what did that guy just say? That is correct. It's a two-part process where it's cold fermented and then aged dry. That is why there's really very few people in the country, relatively speaking, that have the license to do that. And so Deborah said, why don't you go and see if you can make that happen? And indeed, I ultimately hooked up with uh, Stan Fader, easily the best sausage maker. He had a company called Simply Sausage, and the three of us hooked up. We changed the name to Meat Crafters because we were more than just making sausage. And it could have mean, you know, we make salamis, other cured meats, sausages, you name it. We make duck prosciutto, my favorite child, even though you're not supposed to have one. So ultimately, we started this company. Again, it was more like a dream, like a vision, as opposed to, oh, can we make a ton of money making salamis? So we started making the salamis and then the other cured meats in addition to the sausage line that we already had, which you know we served to the likes of Jose Andreas and our first salami restaurant customer was the Inn at Little Washington. That's so. a big deal. For those who may not know the Inn at Little Washington, it is certainly considered to be one of the top inns and restaurants in the country. Uh, that is correct. They have a 40-year run. And in the restaurant industry, that's almost unheard of. They have a three-star Michelin restaurant, and we have the former executive chef at 11 Madison in Manhattan said we make the best salamis in the country. So we've had a lot of really nice accolades for our product. Stan actually even brought the salamis to Italy, where it was one of the places he was trained. He also went to Spain on behalf of Jose Andreas to learn how to do Spanish salamis. He got the thumbs up big time from like third generation salami makers. We're real proud of the products and we've had to expand numerous times. So that's where we are today with Meat Crafters. Incredible. You were so kind and brought me a bag of what's called skinny salamis. It comes in a 2.3 ounce package and I have four of the spicy pork chorizo mini salamis. So Thank you on behalf of my family who will really enjoy eating this. And it's made with pork we without have, antibiotics. Right. We will be coming out with five varieties. Right now we have six varieties, but we're going to reduce it to five varieties. Some will be pork and we will have a beef salami. Pretty much the only person that makes a salami out of beef. There are other meat products that are made out of beef, but not salami. Not everybody eats pork, so we want to you know, give everybody an opportunity to try the products. What's actually happening is that we are attempting to go national with the Skinny Salamis. You can go to SkinnySalamis.com to learn a little more about it. We've just gotten a new partner, Godshall Quality Meats, and we're going to make this in a two-pack and try to roll this out nationally, which has really always been a dream 
of ours because we've helped to build a lot of brands here in the Mid-Atlantic area, but we never really owned a brand of our own. So it was a dream. And I'm 71 years old. So to the listening audience, I say this is it, but I can't really be sure of that yet. I don't think it is. (laughs) I absolutely don't. And P.S., I'm going to post some pictures of Mitch. He does not look 71. The man is a master's level swimmer swimmer and clearly has followed his interests. And I think that probably keeps you young. I believe, and I think science is behind it, having a good attitude, laughing. I think they've actually had studies about laughing. I love laughing. And being happy is just one component of longevity and good health. You know, don't smoke. I don't take drugs. I'm in the pool five days a week. I eat really fabulous seasonal food from the Central Farm Markets. One thing that's very key that I always tell people, it's important to pick your parents as well. So I've done very well in that department. Well, so have I. Thank you. That's great advice. Mitch, if you were a young guy today in college, about to graduate, interested in going into the food industry, what are the trends that you see on the horizon? Well, I believe that people are You know, there's more talk about it, to tell you the truth, about eating healthy and exercising than people are really doing. But I believe strongly that the pendulum is certainly swinging the other way now in terms of people eating less processed food, food with less or no sugar, and trying to eat less refined products, etc. And it's really not complicated. What I know about eating healthy, I basically learned in kindergarten. Eat something from all the basic food groups. When people ask me, Mitch, what do you eat? I just say real food. That's it. A combination of different colors, just real food. In kindergarten, we used to have to cut this out from your mother's magazine, the different food groups. It hasn't changed. They keep changing maybe the shape of the pyramid, but eat a varied diet. And do you see that continuing along sort of the organic real food track? I do. I think we're going to see some things that are real fed in, real fed out, you know, certain things. But at the end of the day, food that looks like food is not supposed to look like something else, but it's made of highly processed other things and water is the first ingredient. I think people are coming around ultimately to just eating food that's identified as food. What about the plant-based approach to eating? And I'm thinking about the unwhopper. Right. Things like that, like really getting more into eating plants. Well, I always joke with people and tell them that I'm a vegetarian because we eat tons of fruits and vegetables. And I also eat meat, fish, poultry, whole grains, and legumes. What I don't consume is soda and processed foods. Segwaying exactly into your question about the plant based things. You know, there are products on the market without saying their names. I urge the consumers to take a look at those ingredients. If you want to eat a hamburger or a sausage, eat a hamburger or a sausage. If you want to eat vegetables, go make yourself a big salad and you want some protein, sprinkle some cheese on there and you're set to go. Throw an egg on a salad. If the consumers are slowly starting to see what's in all the hype about these plant-based burgers and other products like that. 
If you go to their website, you'll find the ingredients. It's not easy. Some of them are on page three of the websites. But I urge your listeners to do that. Okay. So I have two final Time for Coffee questions for you, Mitch. And I try to ask all my guests to share a time in their professional life when they really struggled. Maybe their business went under. Maybe they got fired. Maybe they had terrible clients that just created a nightmare for them. Whatever the case may be, what was that experience For you, Mitch, how did you persevere and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Well, I would say my biggest problem was myself. I wasn't good at delegating. And there was a couple of times I almost had a breakdown from just working around the clock. I mean, as much as you might think you're Superman, and indeed you have to put the hours in if you're starting a new uh, enterprise up. But I wasn't good. And I still could use a lot of improvement in terms of delegating. That's the hardest thing, I think, as a business starts to grow, is for the founder entrepreneur to let go, to delegate. Because if you don't do that, you're never going to grow your business. There's so many hours in the day, and you can only do so much. So that's been a struggle for me. And it's been an ongoing struggle even to this day. So you haven't found the solution to it? Oh, I know the solution. Surround yourself with great people that do know more about each thing. It's for me personally, and I think other entrepreneurs, it's hard to let go. So you just have to force yourself to do it and you learn over time. Some people are slower learners like me. (laughs) Well, it can also be that they may not do it the way that you want it done. And maybe even in your own mind, you feel they're not doing it as well. But to say, you know what, that's okay. It's okay. Well, that's exactly right, because no one's going to do everything exactly like you would do it. And as long as the people have, you know, the skills, the best interest of the enterprise at heart, willing to put in the hours, you have to give them their distance, their space to do it. Yeah. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to American University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Mitch, what advice would you give yourself? Well, pay more attention in the classes that I took. For those that read history books, it was the late 60s. So I don't want to go into too much detail on the air here, but so I'd pay a lot more attention in school. I got by, I got my B average. But if I was thinking about the goals in the future, I would take a lot more accounting classes, marketing classes, because I was always interested in business. And then you can also follow your passion. I love history. So I would take you know more history just to make myself a more well-rounded, interesting person. That's a personal interest of mine. Thank you. Thank you. I know that you have some thoughts that you wrote down ahead of the interview. Is there anything in particular that you want to share from what you've written down, Mitch? Because I know that you have given some extra thought to advice and counsel that you want to share with the younger generation out there. Don't be discouraged by failure. If you talk to many of the most successful entrepreneurs and business people in the country, they will probably give you a bunch of stories about how they failed often multiple times before they became 
successful. So don't give up and don't let failure scare you. Let it be a learning experience. Wonderful, wonderful wisdom. Mitch, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Thank you for being you and having a conversation with me at the farmer's market and your willingness to come to my home and share what you've learned over the years with our young listeners. Well, thank you for the time and I'm honored that you chose me to be on your show. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.